welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. So hello, everybody. Uh, this is Karin Gerbert from Madden America. I'm the arts editor here, and I'm here with Jim Flannery, um, who just came out with a new album that we're going to talk a bit about today um, called Sorry It's Not Funny. Born and raised in suburban Wethersfield, Connecticut, Jim was committed at four mental hospitals across the United States. There he received the best care available in the modern world, torture, which included seclusion, restraints, forced drugging, coercion, and a psychiatric diagnosis. Later, he turned to the arts to speak out publicly about his experiences with the mental health system through forming stand-up comedy under the pseudonym Flim Jannery and now through music with his new album, Sorry It's Not Funny, which we'll be talking about today. In 2020, Jim began hearing voices which opened his eyes to what he terms a genocide against neurodiverse people. He shifted his creative efforts towards hip-hop, believing the genre was the best medium to communicate his perspective. Thanks so much for being here, Jim. Thank you for talking to me and having me here. Appreciate it. Um, as I said before, I'm also a voice here, so I feel like this will be a really interesting, wonderful conversation between two peers um, around this topic. And I'm an artist, so we both sort of have used the arts in our, in our work and in our, uh, in our lives, so I'm excited to talk to you about that. Uh, to start with, I wanted to, to ask you about your experience as Flim Jannery, <laughs> the comedian. So how did that come about? And what was your experience as a comedian in this space? And do you, do you um, just so I know, do you identify as a sex survivor? So that's the term that I've used a lot. The trouble with it is I don't think people really know what I'm talking about if I say that. And so lately, I've been using the term ex-mental patient, which feels a little more appropriate. And I, I think even now that I've had this experience of becoming a voice here and given my previous experiences, I sure as hell wasn't going to go to a mental hospital or anything at for help. I mean, I've, got, I've gotten support through peer, uh, hearing voices groups and that kind of thing. But I mean, the reality is I'd be too scared to go and be a mental patient again. Like once I open my mouth and say things, then it's trouble. I, I kind of prefer now ex-mental patient, though that doesn't really get to the point of being a survivor of something. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Sometimes when we use the word psychiatric survivor, people are actual, actually say to me, what does that mean? You know, like, and, and you, the, the words themselves don't really communicate the, the, the horror of the experience, you know. Did using your comedy in the space of the psych psychiatric survivor movement, did that, did that and, and for yourself personally, did that help you a bit to heal from the psychiatric abuse you experienced? I guess the first question is how did it start, right? So when I was a kid, I was really into stand-up comedy. I mean, I remember being really young listening to Chris Rock and feeling like I was hearing things that maybe I wasn't supposed to hear at that age. Yet at the same time, being exposed to ideas and stories and things about the world that I wasn't exposed to. So there was kind of this journalistic aspect that I saw in comedy and guys like George Carlin, they'd be sharing their idea. I mean, he even later in his career thought of himself as a writer that performs his material instead of a comedian that writes his own material. I learned a lot from these people and they influenced me. And uh, there was other comedians. I mean, I remember being a big Dane Cook fan, Dave Attell. Like, I was just, there's something amazing about it. And you're laughing, you're learning, you share it with friends. Like, it's, it's just 
still, I think, I hate to say it because I just put out a hip hop album. I still think comedy is my favorite medium medium of, of art. Like I just, I need it even if I'm not doing it. So I tried doing comedy in high school, but by the time I got onto a stage, you know, there's all this like writing and writing and writing and then you go and perform. And I was like, oh, well, this kind of sucks. Like I thought like that is supposed to be the part that's what everyone works towards. Almost like in sports, like, oh, you practice, practice, practice. Then there's the game that's supposed to be. And I was like, well, this sucks. What am I doing up here? And I'm like 16. There's all these adults. I'm like, what, what am I doing here? And so I just stopped and uh, sort of anticlimactic to like spend all that time, like maybe a year or something, writing notes and putting together this five minute thing and then just stopping. And then I was 22, got locked up in a mental hospital. For me, it's like, did I deserve to be like, okay, is there something wrong with me? First off, is there anything wrong with me biologically? Is there something wrong in my life going on right now that I need some help? Well, that's not so much a biological flaw, but maybe I need some support or help. I mean, I went to the house. My family took me there. They were worried something was going on. They thought I had hit my head or was on drugs, something, drugs, whatever. They're like, something's wrong with Jim. And I was not pleased to be going there. I took on a lot. I mean, I was 22, started this company with a classmate of mine. We raised all this money and there's all this pressure and don't really have any mentors or people to talk to. And there's a lot, there's a lot going on and a lot of pressure. Uh, the idea that somehow I'm biologically flawed because I couldn't handle that pressure or however you want to present it, uh, I guess is partly the argument that the hospital's making that I'm locked up there. There's something wrong with me. And not only is there something wrong with me, but they can't cure it. They can give me drugs for the rest of my life. Just the whole experience. I mean, it, it, it's bad. It's like the worst. And you don't even know about it. Like you have no idea that these things exist. And then all of a sudden you're the dude who's getting surrounded by people, injected, tied down to a hospital bed. And you're like, what the hell is going on? Like, I thought I was going to Boston tonight with meet with the people that I'm working with because we have this huge thing going on. And you're telling me that I can't leave, even though I haven't broken a law or anything? Like, what, what the hell are you talking about? And so there's, like, shock and, like, what the hell? And now, of course, right? So now you're in this situation where you're surprised, you're shocked, you've almost been kidnapped from your life. Maybe at this point you've been injected with, like, all this is going on. And you're supposed to act, I guess, calm or something. Because they're judging you this entire time based on your reaction to what's going on. And using everything you do to build their case about how you're mentally ill. Like, how is a human being supposed to react in that situation? I mean, I didn't do anything violent because it's like, what is the point of even doing anything violent? There, there is no escape from this place. It's like the doors are locked. There's staff. There's camp. There's all this stuff. And you're just, I mean, I had my sister there for part of the time. But it's like, you're there alone. And then, I mean, then you get injected. You get tied down. You wake up. And now you're really alone. Like you and a lot of um, people say um, use the term torture. That that this experience, I myself use that as well. That this is a, a form of torture. Like I use the word torture, and people, you know, they think I must be overreacting or using some artistic, uh, you know, literary tool to exaggerate. It's like, what part of it do other people think is torture? Yeah, man, you got tied down. Well, what'd you do? You must have done something. Oh, they shot you up. But what'd you do? You, Right. And that's the part that people focus on is being the torture, the needles, the restraints, all that. Since 
dimensional or torture. You may want some evidence. You can focus on those restraints, but I'll never understand what's done to my head. You think I'm crazy? Does that make it okay? If I'm insane, psychotic, nuts, or mentally ill? The truth is, I'm probably human. If you can't already tell. It, it is impossible to like capture the experience of waking up in this hospital and being like, wait, I can't leave here? I didn't do anything wrong. Oh, there's something wrong with me. And then my reaction is, fuck you, there's nothing wrong with me. Or prove it. Give me something. No, 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 there's something wrong with you. And the fact that you don't accept it, well, now that's a symptom. We'll write that down. One more symptom. You don't, and I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? And I mean, you know, I was 22. You like call people. I mean, that was one of the things that, again, it seems like a crazy thing to do, right? There's a pay phone there with a phone book. I'm locked in this place. Well, what am I going to do? I'm going to try to get out. So now I'm in the phone book calling people from the mental hospital, which is great. That's the best place to call people, you know, from, hey, uh, I got locked up in the mental hospital. They won't let me out. I don't know what the hell to do. Please help me. Somebody please help me. And there's nobody that can help you. And now you just look a crazy person because now you're calling everybody, you know, saying I'm locked in the mental hospital. Some of those people might call other people and be like, so I got this call from Jim. He's locked up in a mental. And all this is going on outside and you're creating this storm. And in your mind, you're like, well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe if as many people as possible know that I'm in here, somebody's going to do something. Like my, we're family friends with the, the probate court judge in Hartford, or who was at the time. So now I'm, I was in Hartford at the Institute of Living. I'm locked up there. And I think I saw in like a pamphlet or something that if I have a meds against will hearing, because naturally there was a period of time where I was like, why would I take these drugs and all that? And it's embarrassing. And like, there's a lot of shame with the fact that then eventually they did talk me into there being something wrong with me. And I did take the drugs. And it's like, you know, to be an activist, or somebody speaking out about this thing, it feels so like it's just, it feels like you're a weak failure. You weren't strong enough because you couldn't handle being in there without ending up taking these damn drugs. Yet you talk to people on the outside when you're locked up in there. And the best advice that you're getting is, well, you're going to be there for 30 days. If you keep putting up a fight, they're going to transfer you over to a state hospital because your insurance is going to run out. I want to um, ask you specifically, like these experiences within the hospital, when you got out and, and years later, when you started speaking out about it, where, where did comedy take you when you when you started engaging with it? It was the healing. So comedy. Um, I hear your, your so your question seems to be, how did it help me? So that is sort of the awkward uh, response is that it didn't help me really in anything. It much, mostly made my life worse for me personally. Uh, there's folks that do benefit from talking out loud about their experiences and maybe in a way being at a hearing voices group and saying out loud and being able to communicate with people, that's a, a very effective therapeutic thing to be like, Hey, I, I can't just have this in my head. I need to talk about this. I need to find the words to describe these experiences. I otherwise like, won't I have some mental instability if I don't talk about this with anyone? But if you talk about it publicly, now you could ruin your life because once you say these things publicly, you're shutting the doors basically on employment opportunities, potentially like romantic partners, maybe friends, potentially family. So to say that it's therapeutic to come out like that, I don't know. I mean, maybe, uh, I mean, I've heard people uh, related to coming out, right? For people who are homosexual, right? And they come out. And I've got to believe that there are some benefits to being open and being yourself, but I bet that there's a hell of a lot of stuff that sucks about that with relationships. That, I mean, it's it just, so 
comedy in some ways has, has made my life much worse. The effort there was to speak out publicly about these experiences because it's like, I didn't know about any of this stuff when I got locked up. If I had known something, maybe it could have gone differently. If my family had known something, if people knew about these things, sure as hell wouldn't take me to a mental hospital. I mean, I hate to say it. Like I, I heard voices, you know, that this stuff started a couple of years ago. I felt like I needed help. I don't know that I needed biological help, like in, in with psychiatric drugs, but it's like, I needed to go somewhere and talk to someone, but it, I, based on what had happened to me, I'm never going to hospital for that. And I'm not taking someone else there. So as far as like um, your, when you started doing um, the comedy and engaging also, you did a lot of activism. You did a lot of work with Mind Freedom International and things like that. How do you think comedy works in the activist space? How do you think it sort of changes things there? I really believed in comedy. And I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not a good medium. Beginning to hear voices changed my perspective in some way about the seriousness of the subject matter that I'm talking about. And that like, it's hard. I mean, I even, I've tried to like laugh and talk about it. It's just, how the hell do I laugh and talk about it? it? It's hard to make jokes about it. And then it just gets angrier. Like I've gotten a lot angry over time and some comedy can come from anger, but I mean, then, all right. So the goal here was become as biggest comedian that exists on damn earth so that everybody knows about these experiences and talk about this stuff. But ultimately, and I, I hate to say that it's like my, like I have a bad, I don't want to say I have a bad sense of humor, Slim, but something about comedy, or maybe it's the way that I do it, that somehow someone's the brunt of a joke. And like, I could try to talk about myself and my own experiences as much as I can, but like there's something that absolutely sucks about knowing that people's feelings are being hurt by the jokes I make. And I, I don't mean to sound like I'm trying to cancel comedian. I, it's not, I'm not trying to do any of that. It's just, I mean, it's my own work, my own words, my own stuff that it's like, I, I guess you could say I canceled myself or something that I just didn't want to hurt people anymore. It almost makes me think of John Taylor Gatto a little bit. The, so he was the New York state teacher of the year a couple of times. And then he ended up giving his speech for being awarded that. And he's like, I no longer want to hurt children. I'm not going to teach anymore. So like, there was a part of that for me and it's like, all right, I'll stop doing comedy what what do I do instead? And I had thought for a while about hip hop because there's something about that genre that is so raw and honest and authentic. And like some of it's funny, but you don't need to be. And uh, I had wanted to make hip hop music, but it sort of seemed like something that I could not do as like the main thing that I did, that I couldn't be a hip hop artist. I could be a comedian that made a song or, you know, but it just couldn't be who I was. Then my next question was going to be about the voice hearing. When you, you came out recently in a blog post revealing that you were a voice hearer. First of all, I want to ask you, you know, how this emerging new experience was like for you. Okay. So one of my instincts is to just bring up anger. Because after I heard voices, my feelings about the mental health system, it sort of validated some feelings that I already had. Because there's a part of me that just wants to believe that the goddamn world is a good place and that anything that bad that happened was sort of a mistake or it wasn't intentional or, you know, I just got mixed up in the system. And, you know, it's just what happens when you have these systems and you're like not really a person. You're just treated like a number coming through. I wanted to believe that. And then the summer of 2020. So in the beginning, I thought I was talking to a spirit. Right. And I'm laughing about it because. I, I don't believe that now, but, and I, 
I mean, my feelings about spirituality and religion, I don't know if you listen to the song Punitive Damage, so you, you would hear that I have some uncomfortable feelings about religion. And in particular, it's, well, that song really emphasizes the idea of hell. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't believe there's a hell. Um, and just because it's written in a book and people say it, and I'm supposed to fear for my life all the time. I'm already scared of the damn mental health system all the time. Now I got to worry that I'm going to go to hell on top of that. Like, come on, please. I, uh, I, did, I was trying to do, I guess, an experiment of sorts. Uh, so involved cannabis, right? So previously, there was a couple of times, a few times that I thought maybe I was hearing a voice. This particular time felt very like cause and effect. And like, I remember it, it was like this unusual thing that I mixed together a little bit of sativa with indica. I mean, it took a long time off of smoking weed, like when I was on psych drugs and getting off them and all that time. And then I tried starting again. And so this particular evening, I was like, all right, let me try this. So I take a hit of the pipe and next thing you know, I'm, I get the first like kind of two or three encounters with this uh, being or leprechaun. I, it's so stupid. You don't have to qualify this stuff to me. And so many voice hearers have such a diverse, uh, um, all voice hearers have a diverse way of understanding their voices. And, and it's important that the frame, I feel the frame that we use is, is helpful to us. So, and also there's no judgment here for me. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I do feel it. Like I, I, I judge myself as a person who like believes in science. It also knows that we don't have the answers to everything. I like to think I'm open-minded. <laughs> but sometimes you call it you you called it a feature, not a bug. Now, like the journey that you took through it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I. So this was. Uh, now it's been two years. So, well, I mean, that's where like all this anger and, and like rage, I guess you'd say, comes from is that. But my first encounters, it was sort of a feeling that there's someone else, something else is here. I'm communicating with it. What is, you know, and even then I'm wondering, is something biologically different about me that's allowing me to communicate with the spirit? Is it because I smoke this weed that I'm communicating with the spirit? Is it a combination of the weed and something about my biology? Because I've been locked up and doctors have been saying there's something different. What is it that's allowing me to, to do this right now? And even there's a little bit of weirdness that there was times before that when maybe I was talking to a voice. So talking to a spirit, especially when you're only hearing one voice, you're only hearing one voice and you're like, well, this must be very important. I'm hearing one voice. Is this God? Is this spiritual? Is this something? And I was pretty convinced it was real. I remember a specific day that, at least in my memory, that marks when it went from spirits to I'm hearing voices. Is there was a day, uh, so let's say the first time I interact with one of these spirits is, say, July of 2020, somewhere February, I think February of 2021, I wake up, I'm hearing voices all day. And I didn't do anything to summon them to talk to me. They're just there. And they're changing out. Like, talk to one, and then there's another, there's another. And it's happening so quickly. So first off, I'm like, all right, there's no spirits here. If there are, wow, I'm blessed, because I got a bunch of them. And what are we even talking? Like, like this whole idea that there's spirits, I was like, oh. And I, I, I want to bring this up, because... It seems important that there was a few days at least where I was like trying to figure out, is there a chip in my head? Like I'm, I was one of, you know, I say those people, but like that idea 
that if you think if you hear voices and you think you have a chip in your head, you must be psychotic, right? But I have to say, if you hear voices and you don't at some point think you got a chip in your head, like you should at least consider it. And so, like I say, like you say psychotic, because I'm thinking about that, but like I am, I'm trying to figure out how would that work. I mean, like, all right, what if I go in another room and another room, does the volume change? Does the clarity change? Should I go somewhere that's like a Faraday cage? Because if there's a chip in my head, some, you know, all these things are going on. And the way it was changing from voice to voice to voice, it seemed as efficient as if someone was maybe passing a microphone around or something. I, I had that thought, like it, 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 and it wasn't like a brief that I thought it for a while. And I was like, oh, I just hear voices. There's that time period where you're, you're sort of trying to figure the uh, almost do, like you're saying, do almost experiments where you're trying to figure out the framework that's going to work for you. Like, what am I going to believe about this experience? And, you know, scientific inquiry like that is one of the, the one of the ways you sort of find a path, you know, or I, you know, I, I identify with that. I, I definitely um, had experiences like that too, where it was just trying to sort of, what do you, you know, what is this made of, <laughs> you know, and how can I find out more? How can I investigate? When you sort of started, get, started realizing that this was really a feature of just being human, a neurodiverse situation where it's a feature, not a bug, you talk about how this gave you a revelation that there was really what you term a genocide going on around neurodiverse people. So if you want to talk about that a little bit, I'd like to hear more. So those first experiences happened in the summer, in July. As the fall was rolling around, things in my own life got a little bit uncomfortable. Like I spoke at a, uh, I gave a testimony at the Connecticut Valley Hospital or I was over Zoom. And uh, that is when I started to get really scared. Like I spoke out publicly about it and said exactly how I felt about what was going on. And I thought, well, there's going to be repercussions for this. I shouldn't be saying these things out loud on the record and challenging them. So then I start getting more nervous and scared. Meanwhile, and that's like going on in the real world, right? These are like real world things that are happening. Meanwhile, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what is going on. Am I hearing spirits? Am I talking to spirits? I don't, think at that point I was like, oh, there are voices in my head. But this idea that there was a genocide, I, I, I was like, this must be unique to me and my biology. That I'm smoking a plant, communicating with a spirit. I've never heard anyone talk about doing these things before. I don't think I'm crazy. This is very real. This is some sort of secret or something that's being kept from people. And if not everyone can do this, then I start thinking that all of the efforts that were put into, I guess you'd say, destroying my soul and my, whatever through the mental health system. Now, all of a sudden, there's an intention. Now, there's a reason. Oh, well, I can understand why somebody would say, hey, especially if there are people who cannot do what I was doing. If there's some people biologically that can talk to spirits and some people who cannot. I would think the people who cannot are either going to think those folks are crazy that are talking to spirits, or they're going to say, let's get rid of these people. They're a threat. If they get to talk to spirits, we're, we're, who are we? There's some part of me that um, always sort of goes back to, of course, indigenous cultures around the world, 
you know, who do know about these practices and do have specific um, roles in their uh, cultures for people like us, right? Like this diversity of hearing voices, this diversity of, you know, being able to do this with our with our minds, you know, or or and and do this uh, uh, fe- this feature that we have, right? That's different from everyone else. Um, in indigenous cultures, really, it was recognized and honored and respected, and people were given a specific role in society to do certain things, you know, medicine people or shamans and stuff like that, you know, and and in modern society, right? Where are we? We're in mental institutions. You know, so it does make sense to me that framing it as a as an intentional effort to eradicate people like us, you know, somehow, or at least crush their soul, like you're saying. Yeah, it's it's interesting that I, I sort of have this feeling and almost a belief that like the mental health system destroyed me in some sort of, you know, I mean, I guess the drugs like physically, but like it destroyed me yet. If I believe that, then it's like, well, what am I doing right now sitting here talking to you? I can't be that destroyed if I'm still here talking about these things and doing something. No, no. Yeah. And you make, and honestly, also making a hip hop album, like that's amazing. And, and so this, what we were just talking about, sort of, you can see this journey that you took and it took you to hip hop. Tell us about that. Yeah. There was all this feeling about like, my life is being destroyed and ruined and I'm not making nearly the goddamn impact that I set out to do with, that was with comedy. And, you know, and there was like this feeling through comedy that's like, as a comedian, I can talk about anything. I can say anything. I can talk about anything, get these ideas out there. So it felt like comedy was the way to talk about it. And uh, then I get the idea in my mind that running for president would be a way to do this without anybody's feelings and being hurt. Like, I don't have to step on anyone by making a joke. Isn't the president of the Ukraine, wasn't he originally a comedian? <laughs> he was a comedian, yeah, which is great, right? Like, at least there's one out there, right? And uh, so I start thinking this is, like, the only way to move forward. It's going to take more than a comedian talking about these things for something to change. So I start thinking I'll run for president. And it's like, why not? Legally, I'm just of age that I could pull that off. If I believed that the words I was going to say uh, were going to move people in such a way that's going to change the world in a meaningful way, then maybe that is the kind of person that can do that with uh, to run for president. I mean, I start thinking I'm going to do that, and I, I barely told anybody. And then the minute that like I started talking to people about it, I started getting worried and scared that I sh- just all these fears. So. I get scared. Life gets worse. Person I love left me. That was pretty devastating. Still is a bit. So then I'm stuck. It's like, well, do I keep going doing comedy? Do I pursue this run for president thing? Do I do this hip hop thing? All I want to do is be able to change this system and change the, you know, I say change the world. I would love to have this mental health system, all this be fixed amongst other things the wrong with the world. So like the album ended up, well, I'd never made a hip hop song before. So it started off with writing a lot of poetry and writing and writing and writing. Did you do much research around, uh, around hip hop? Not as much into like how to write a song. I didn't really get into that. It was more the history of it, all the different artists, the things they talk about. 
But I'm like writing all these things and it's like, what is it that I want to say? What is it that I want to do? And one challenge that I have is, well, if like the thing that drove all of this is the mental health system and wanting to change that, if I make an entire album talking about mental health, then it's going to be like a gimmick. To me, it was like, if I want to be a big artist, I need to show that I can talk about other subjects and there are other things that I care about. It is a little unusual for me to express myself about other subjects, but comedy did do something like that for me because I felt the same way about comedy. I can't go up and do an hour show where all I talk about is the mental health system. Like, You might expect me to talk about it and things I say might be through the perspective of somebody that's been harmed. Comparatively to the comedy, do you feel like the album has a different role, a different way of acting in the activist space, the psychiatric survivor space? Yeah. One of the great things about it, so you mentioned earlier that I performed under a pseudonym, Flim Jannery. With comedy, I would make things up. I would exaggerate. Some, I guess you'd say lie. It's that. It's entertainment. It's comedy. I want to talk about all this, but I got to edit it in a way that I don't want to like criminate people or talk about people and tell these stories. And Whereas with hip hop, I was like, the whole point of this is to say exactly what I want to say. I don't need to, you know, even this is so weird. I, I use the name Jim Flannery. For hip-hop, most hip-hop artists are using a stage name. With comedy, most people are using their real name. I'm, I ended up using a stage name. So so you feel like the, the genre the genre of hip-hop actually holds more truth to it for you. Along with the anger, too, I think, um, did you feel like it could hold that, that rage as well? Yes, that is actually one nice thing about it. I have been ter- I've been told that sometimes I'm funny when I'm angry. I tried to go back and do comedy again, and I was like, This is so angry. And I could turn this into something funny. And that's sort of, this is like something that really frustrates me is I feel like maybe I was a better comedian or had more potential. Like that was a, maybe a better direction in the long run, let's say as a career that I could be as good as, you know, in time, the greats with hip hop. It's a hell of a lot harder to be as good as the greats in that world. And there's the whole aspect of like, well, now there's music. It's not just the words I say. It's not just the way I say it. There's the music. There's all these other aspects, which makes it way more difficult. But for me, in that case, I was like, I'm writing these words. I'm going to make sure every goddamn thing in here is something that I believe. And then when I do it, it's like, then I can rap that way because I'm saying stuff that I believe. Even like the title, Sorry, It's Not Funny. Like I tried to make the album not funny because if I start making it funny, then I'm first off, I'm creating a whole different art form. I'm not going to get to say things the way I want to say it. And now somehow it's being judged on based on whether it's funny or not. The message, the words, the truth, all the stuff that I'm talking about is important and it matters and the goddamn world needs to change. But it's like, oh, shucks. If I don't, if I'm not funny enough or I'm not a good enough rapper, no one's even going to hear this and it's not going to be good enough. So I, I made the album, like I said, I, I, uh, I keep thinking about I haven't really talked ever about giving up or quitting. And like, I think about that now a little bit and like, it's just, it just eats at me. Uh, Cause I worry that the album's not good enough. I, I made it and I thought it would be like this Magnus Opus of mine that maybe it would attract a record label or people would love it. And so many people would hear it that somehow if I know that I don't have the musical talent and I'm a, I'm a inexperienced rapper that somehow the words and the message and the meaning and even something about my voice, at least hopefully it doesn't hurt people's ears. I think what you're doing with the album is that you're you're serving uh, at this point, right? You're serving a community of people who have gone through what you've gone through. 
And you're also raising awareness, you know, by those people sharing it with others. It's courageous what you've done. It's powerful and it's helpful to the people who have suffered like you have. So I would not for a second think that it's not making an impact or it's not good enough. It's making an impact, I think, in in the way it needs to. It's doing, like we said before, that you put the art into the world and it just does what it's meant to do. And I think your album is doing what it's meant to do, which is which is serving those people who have been through that horrific experience of being institutionalized in mental hospitals, being tortured. And so please, you know, see that courage that you took to, t- to do that album. Art is hard, man. Like you said, art is freaking hard. <laughs> Where can people find the album? How can they listen? So right, I mean, they go to jim-flannery.com and they click on music and find it. The, it's on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, SoundCloud, Tidal, Pandora, and the radio. There are a couple of college radio stations that have put my songs in rotation. So that's something. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I've had a quite a long time of being an artist and you sort of end up wallpapering your walls with rejection before you get any, uh, you know, um, support for your work. So um, that's another aspect of art making that is just so horrifically hard. So keep it up. Don't give up, um, you know, and keep making art is most important. Keep creating. My last question for you. I want to um, ask you what your hopes are for the future and in two realms, like in the realm of um, the mental uh, um, health industry and also in accepting how people accept neurodiversity in our culture and in your life and work as well. Well, I think you can't have one without the other. If the mental health system is going to change, you're going to have some amount of acceptance in the culture about neurodiversity. I mean, this is something I put, I wrote this book, Leave School, and I remember mentioning in it this idea about culture and the laws. That, all right, if you want the laws to change, you have to change the culture. And how do you change the culture? All right, this is great. My hopes, one, that hearing voices is no longer assumed to be some sort of a biological defect that someone has, that people would see this as a, a feature and not a bug. And that if they do that, Maybe somebody will think it's a little fucked up that you're doing this to people who have a feature and not a bug. The label of bipolar disorder, I wish that no one would ever say that to somebody ever. That, having doctors say that to me, has been the most destructive thing in my life probably. So I would love for that to change. And if those things change, I don't know if we'll still be, is there any reason to lock people up in mental hospitals if you don't think that hearing voices is anything wrong with it? And you don't think that people are bipolar? I mean, there's other reasons why they lock people up there, but, you know, all right. So one other hope, soteria houses, peer respites, no forced drugging. And how about your, how about your art? What do you, what do you think you're, you'll be going, going to next? I would really love if I could keep doing hip hop and rapping. That, that feels to me, I love doing it. I feel good about it when I'm doing it. Nothing in my mind says, oh shit, I might hurt people. You know, I'm more concerned. Are they liking it? Are people dancing? Are they listening to the words? Are they like, I, I would love to keep doing that. Like if the goal here is not necessarily make, like it's to change the damn world. And if I already made this album and what I made already after everything I poured into this thing isn't quite good enough, then I don't know that I can believe that I can make something more like that, that is going to surpass that on my own. I was thinking while you were talking um, about um, 
your hopes for the future of, of um, how we treat neurodiverse people and how we treat voice hearers. I was thinking it sort of comes down to uh, um, being able to share your story safely, to feel comfortable in your own experience and create and share your story like you have through your album and do that safely without the, the kind of consequences that people like us face. I don't know if that'll ever happen. I, I, I wish that would happen, but I, I don't feel safe. No, no, I understand. I, yeah. As a, as a person who also shared, you know, her voice hearing experience, I, you know, I hear you on all those fronts. It, it can be very frightening and um, the consequences of which, you know, sometimes you don't even know until later. So I just feel you on that and a lot of solidarity on your experience. But I do, I just really want to commend you for the courage it took for you to create this album and even the comedian work that you did before and the activism work you've, work you've done. Just, you know, you've done an amazing job already. So thank you. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for talking with me. Appreciate it. What have I done? You may ask first. You don't ask them. That's what hurts the worst. What have I done? You may ask first. You don't ask them. That's what hurts the worst. I don't wish that you tortured me in public, but don't force it on me to expose what you wanted. Because my speaking about this may make people afraid, but it's your power and coming after, so I don't think I need to explain.